But I have the opportunity, obviously, to fill in this morning as your substitute, so apologies in advance. <clears throat> but we uh, continue corporately through our Sunday school lesson together. Uh, please, if you would, let's turn to chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. Philippians 2. <clears throat> And we're going to focus on verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. I plan to do this in sections, uh, reading, and then just kind of diving in a little bit with each of those sections. That's going to be kind of our approach this morning. And I aim to hopefully ask questions that make us think introspectively, make us examine ourselves. So I want to ask questions as we go through, that are uh, relative to this passage. You don't have to raise your hand and speak. But I want us to think how we would answer as we ask ourselves what this passage obviously means to us. Now, this book, the backdrop here, the book is just so filled with joy. Um, And I, you know, we're weeks in, and I forget at times to really remember and to really think about what all has happened to Paul up to this point in his writing. Um, you know, he survived an intense storm at sea. He's been incarcerated for an indefinite period of time, somewhat deserted by people. And uh, as we well know, too, he's just been relentlessly pursued, either him personally or his message from his enemies. And yet the apostle writes a book filled with joy. How does he do that? How does he do that? Well, we know that he does this because he points us to to Christ, to Jesus Christ. And he also does that because he simply just loves this group of believers, this specific church. And uh, so if we're down, if we're discouraged, if we're troubled, which is synonymous with living at some de- to, to some degree or another, then what a book it is for us to study. So, as you well know, practical book, very hands-on book, but also has very, very rich themes, rich topics that are uh, just that very deep. Would you agree with me that the Bible contains truths that can be really hard to understand, even sometimes impossible to fully comprehend? Would you agree with me that that's true? You know, at minimum, there can be tension, uh, if not even a paradox, full-on paradox around some truths that, that we read as, uh, as Bible students. Specifically, when two things that seem exclusive are both true. At the same time, you know, just simple examples here. You have the the forever struggle, ancient struggle between, you know, God's sovereignty and man's will, man's free will. Um, You know, I immediately think of uh, the narrative in Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh. And I went back and if I was accurate, I counted 17 times in those early chapters where they're uh, back and forth. And the phrase is mentioned you probably know it, right? Pharaoh's heart was hardened, exactly. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, 
it was amazing to, to look at it because there's a, almost a general mix down the middle between the statement that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then the opposite amount of times where it's saying um, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Um, another example is just the inspiration of scriptures, how we have the Bible that's written from all these different men and, you know, that amazing passage in uh, the first part of First uh, Peter where it says that, you know, men studied their own writings to, to understand what it meant and to look ahead at, um, at Christ. And so is it spirit? Is it the spirit that, that wrote the Bible? Is it, is it men? Obviously, the, the depths of salvation where we have God's elect versus man's responsibility to believe. And then, of course, from last week, um, the idea of the kenosis, God being fully, Jesus being fully God and fully man. And, I mean, the answer to all this is yes, each time. And we know that. Um, and we trust that it's true. But the danger, I think the warning for us is that we can be unbalanced at times and uh, maybe emphasize one extreme or the other in some of these instances just in an attempt to kind of reconcile in our human minds, our human brains, how to, how to bring those things together. So Paul, to our text here, Paul comes out of one amazing paradox. Uh, again, the kenosis, the, the God-man being exalted. And he goes right out of one paradox straight into another. Now, so let me read verse 12 for us. Therefore, my beloved, <clears throat> as, you as, all, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So the question is, the, the paradox is, what is the believer's role and what is God's role in sanctification? How do those things harmonize? How do they gel? And when I use the word sanctification, what that means is in simplest terms just the Christian becoming more and more like, like Christ, uh, becoming holy. You have the past for the Christian, which is justification. You have the present, which is sanctification. You have the future, which is glorification. Uh, we could be saying that we were made holy, then we become more holy, and then we're finally holy or ultimately holy. Um, and I would just say that this is not optional. It can't be separated from salvation. And as Christians, we're called to um, a diligent walk, a diligent walk, a faithful walk. Um, I'm going to read. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read for us First Peter one thirteen. First Peter one thirteen. Therefore. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So get ready, prepare for action, and then the command a little bit later is that, but as he has called you to be holy, you also shall be holy in your conduct. You'll be holy for I am holy. So we can't separate that command. It's inherent with what it means to be a Christian. And, you know, I fully recognize that that's review for most of us here this morning. But it's a good thing for us to be reminded of because of the challenge that Paul is going to lay out for us. 
So verse 12, the word therefore, you know, we know that Paul is linking this section of of Scripture backwards. And uh, I would say that he's linking it to the mountaintop. The mountaintop that is, is the section of Scripture preceding this where the humble Christ is exalted. And uh, I intend this morning to hopefully revisit continually back to the, the kenosis and the, the humiliation that is uh, described there with Christ's coming. Um, uh, James Boyce says, Truth leads to action, and, this, and there is uh, no value to a mountaintop experience unless it helps us to live in the valleys. Truth leads us to action, and there is no value to a mountaintop experience unless it helps us to live in the valleys. That's great because we're coming off the mountaintop with, from a theological perspective in chapter 2. So what does that mean in terms of living in the valleys? Chapter, er, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... You know, just a reminder, too, that like John in his writings, this is ende- he's uh, using a term of endearment. As you have always obeyed, Christians follow God's word. Obedience is inherent with what it means to be a Christian. An amazing thought that I t- truly had not really thought too much of is, I mean, I can't be emphatic about it, but think about maybe the Philippian jailer in from Acts 16. He might be somebody who's a recipient of this letter thinking, yes, I obeyed. Yes, I heard, I believed, I obeyed. And I'm one of the beloved. Paul says, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So what's implied here is that they, these people were reliant on their spiritual mentor. They were reliant on Paul, as you would assume they would be. Um, and our takeaway is this. It's not the point, but it is a point of our, of our scripture this morning. That's Christians shouldn't be solely dependent on their pastor, on their teacher, on their accountability partner. Uh, we have an individual responsibility to obey the Lord, an individual responsibility to grow. And to do so as we're reliant on the Bible, as we're reliant on Scripture, our example is Jesus, and we're fueled by the Holy Spirit. So I have to stop and just ask, what about you? Are you reliant entirely on this hour or the next hour, and that's it for the week? Are you reliant on another person to the extent that you're not... uh, seeking out what God's word has for you, but relying on someone else. I'm not saying those things aren't good. We need that, obviously. But there's an individual responsibility that is uh, underlying here, and I think Paul is calling that out to these people in, in his absence. But the much bigger point, the focus of verse 12, is that phrase, work on your own salvation. If I could say it a little bit differently, take ownership. Paul's saying, take ownership. Notice, if you will, he's not saying uh, work for your salvation. 
That would be opposed to what we believe is the gospel of grace. But the idea here is that you bring to the forefront, do what you can for the salvation that exists to bring it to the top. And that is implied that salvation exists already and that is there, right? So your newness as a believer, your, your, uh, your holiness now being set apart, that's do what you can to bring it up, bring it to the forefront. And, uh, and do so like this. And here it is. Full sustained effort. It's the best summary that I read. It's just full sustained effort. Human effort. Again, that passage in 1 Peter reminds us that the believer, we are responsible and called to be holy. So take ownership of it. Paul wrote later, uh, or separately, I should say, in 1 Corinthians 9, you, you, you know the metaphor where the runners that are running in a race, why are they running? To obtain a prize, to win. Uh, John MacArthur, MacArthur uh, surprise, surprise, was most helpful in framing this idea for me. And, and he does it with defining uh, this idea within familiar doctrines. And the doctrines that I already kind of talked about. You got justification in the past, sanctification now, glorification in the future. And so he says, okay, pursue that glorification as much as you can, keeping Christ, uh, the fullness of Christ in mind. So very, very helpful. You know, we're, we're in this current state. Let's strive and aim and be focused on that future state. Here's 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life of which you're called. About which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we have this overlap of um, glorification and sanctification and, and human effort. But he says so in verse 12 with a qualifier. And he says, work out your own salvation. What, what's the next couple words that you have? How so? It's qualified for us. Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Strong, weighty words, and because it's kind of a phrase that is maybe familiar from other areas of Scripture, I tend to kind of just skim over that, personally. Uh, it's not, that's not marketing material, right? If we're talking about uh, relationships, whether that's vertical or horizontal relationships here, these are strong, weighty words. With fear and trembling, you know, on the human level, Paul uses this exact phrase, describing his ministry to the Corinthians and also he uses it later in, the, in uh, Corinthians uh, talking about their reception of Titus. So there's a human element here and I think the best summary that I was able to read was just that it's love and affection but because of personal weakness. So it's love and affection out of personal weakness. But I think more importantly in here the focus is reverence and awe seriousness, maybe shakiness, and the right response when we consider our weakness, our spiritual weakness, and uh, our propensity to give in to temptation and sin. So I, I, I was struck uh, recently in 
reading Revelation 20. And the scene there is the judgment that happens at the great white throne. And there's, there was a phrase there that, and, it, and God's glory is just everywhere in the book. It's not the focus, this little phrase, but it just struck me. It says, from his presence, from God's presence, when his glory is revealed, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And I was just so struck by that. It's terrifying. That's a terrifying description of God and his glory. Reverence, awe, seriousness, shakiness. I think for the last three weeks, somebody has referenced Isaiah 66.2, and I'll make it four weeks in a row then, and I'll read it for us. Isaiah 66.2, this is started earlier by God saying, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. In verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, you think of Isaiah 6, even the beginning of this book, where the vision, the reality that Isaiah the prophet experienced and um, being brought to the throne, and he says, woe to me, I'm undone. His immediate response, I'm undone, meaning I think that my body is going to be <laughs> just disintegrated. His immediate response is, I have unclean lips. I, I'm done. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And why this response? Isaiah's response is because his sin is just prevalent. That's the only thing he could think of when he comes in contact with the, the holiness of God. <clears throat> that, why is that his response? It's because he's sinful. And I've used the word holy a lot. This is the first time I've talked about sin and used that word, and, and they are, they're associated. And we talk about holiness as being set apart and battling sin. And our sin is magnified and even more offensive and punishable when we have a high view of God. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That, we have to have a high view of God, a right view of God, a right view of our sin. And commentators point out that's even worsened because of our love for God. So not only are we offending him because he's holy, but we love him because of what he's done for us. So what's the point then? We've got to give full, sustained effort against sin. Work out your salvation. Full, sustained effort in a human level against the sin that so easily entangles us. So the question here, if I could flip it around, how do you view your sin? How do you view your sin today? Are you calloused? Is it just trivial? Can we rank our sin differently and, you know, qualify it differently? Is it a barrier to you? Is it, is it built up and become a barrier to your sanctification? Are you not offended as we should be? Paul closes that thought. If we go back to Philippians, he closes that thought, but he continues on. So if I'm at verse 13, if you're reading with me, for it is God who works in you both to will and to, good, and 
to work for his good pleasure. Did you notice the pivot? There's a change here. He emphasized previously the believer's duty. Now he reiterates God's work in us. So again, is it the Christian or is it God working sanctification? And we know the answer is yes, yes to both. Verse 13, for it is God. Uh, Already we have to stop and just say, you know, the uniqueness of our God. He is, he is one. He is, he is alone. Pagan worship, false deities, gods, idols. You would appease a God only because he was angry and uh, there was no relationship sought. Here we have a contrast, an immense contrast, of the God of the Bible who is relational and shows love for his creation. You can't even get past that. And it's God who works in us, in us. Simply put, God's power is what drives our obedience. God's power is what enables our sanctification. And as much as uh, verse 12 was our human responsibility, verse 13 here is, is Holy Spirit driven. And the simplest illustration being, if you think about energy or fuel or battery, something external powering a device or an engine. And, you know, the reality of God dwelling in us and his church, it's just a staggering promise. A promise that was given uh, back in Acts 1-8 where you will receive power when the Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses as a result. And as we've been well taught here at this church, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a stamp of assurance. Really, this kind of carries into, bleeds into the doctrine of perseverance and the uh, theme of being an overcomer or a conqueror, prevalent later in Scripture. Um, Good synopsis, if we go backwards in our book to chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That phrase, both to will and to work, God has a sovereign divine purpose. He does. He has a sovereign divine purpose. And note, however, that this is the believer's will. It is the believer's work. But that desire to obey God comes before anything we can actually do to accomplish something to that end. In other words, we have to desire to please God before we can actually do anything. It starts with longing to do His will. <laughs> I'm amazed. <laughs> everybody, who is in a care group? Can I ask? Put everybody on the spot here. Yeah, it's the majority. I've just really enjoyed the format and being together. But it just seems like every time we have dialogue, we just come back to the same point of like, okay, are we just gonna are we gonna choose to obey God or disobey? And we almost laugh because that's where all of our <laughs> questions kind of lead us. We have to long to de- and desire to please Him. But Paul points out here that even that desire originates from God. It's Him and His power to to drive that act and that and that operation so and i and will sometimes i use that term we in our language flippantly but it's more than emotional 
This goes beyond emotion. This is purposeful intent. Our will is purposeful intent. And, and how does God do this? How does he direct us? How does he guide our will and our work? Well, he, he does impress on us. And he does it two ways. One is basically re- helping us recognize that we are sinful, that we fall short, and that we are not to be content in our spiritual state. So recognizing that we fall short is a motivator. And secondly, our hatred of sin, our desire for righteousness on the positive side. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I, if you're like me, that one's, you got that one. That's, that's one that we can recall, right? Not of works. But, I mean, I'm just so blown away by verse 10 because I don't do it justice in recalling that one to mind. We are his workmanship created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's pretty mind-blowing here this morning at this time. I mean, the good works that we do, God prepared them beforehand so that we would walk in them. Verse 13, if we continue, it's for his good pleasure. We can bring God pleasure. He, a God who needs nothing, self-sufficient. And what a motivation that is just in and of itself. That our actions, our deeds, what we choose to do, not do, can truly please God. So the point is, we need to labor to do so. We need to strive to do so. And that power does not lie ultimately within ourselves, but within God. So our summary, our, our application here in this, this small section is I led with a warning for us to be balanced in our belief of truth, particularly truths that are hard to understand. And if you look at verses 12 and 13, you kind of have both sides of the equation. Paul lays out both uh, sides of the coin, if you will, when it comes to sanctification. And the danger is that we would kind of build our theology or anchor on one side or the other uh, to a fault. And this really does manifest itself in a lot of different ways, whether it's actual uh, religious organizations or philosophy. You know, we, if we think about verse 12, pursuing godliness and personal holiness is obviously a good thing, right? But, as you well know, if we are doing that on our own, if we believe that we're earning any sort of merit or salvation on our own, And, and if we do demonstrate spiritual maturity or holy works, well, we could be susceptible for, for being uh, arrogant about that. You know, the source of that could be our own pride. And then on the flip side, if we, when we do fail, and we will, then we could just be caught in this cycle of, of depression or despair because, you know, our spiritual growth is then reliant solely on ourselves. Conversely, if we think about verse 13, the fact that it's God's will, well, we can just be hands off and surrender and just yield to God. And, uh, you know, you, you've heard the phrase, and maybe it hasn't even been a red flag for me. I, I think it will be now, but let go and let God. You know, what is, I don't know what that means now. <laughs> let go and let God. Or, uh, you know, a great 
Grammy award-winning Nashville theologian once said, Jesus, take the wheel, so just let go, let God. I thought I'd get more laughs this morning on that one. We can't remove our own culpability, our responsibility to live and act in obedience and holiness. And when we do sin, if you were to sin and think that, oh, it's, I just let, let go and let God, and you were to sin, well, then who's responsible for that sin? It's not God. So what about you today? I know I'm beating this down. and We're spending most of our time on these verses, but we have to strike a balance. So recognize we are to work out our salvation because it is God at work. Both are true. Both will occur in the believer. They have to. But the former is dependent on the latter. And this tension is not isolated here in Paul's writings. Let me read three verses where he combines it and balances that that tension for us. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 1.29 For this I toil, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then, at the risk of encroaching on a future Sunday school lesson here, if you skip ahead in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verses 14 and 15. Let's continue on. Chapter 2, 14, 15, and uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Wish we could skip that part. The church is on display. As Christians, we are observed and analyzed by others. And really, there's an external element now to uh, this, this section of our scripture. And, and people are seeing that we should be diligent, faithful in our daily walk and our daily lifestyle. And again, Paul focuses now almost on outreach with these next verses. Depending on your version, you might have uh, grumbling or murmuring. You might have uh, disputing or questioning. And uh, what was interesting and what I learned is that, you know, you can almost capture both the emotional response that we have, but also our intellectual or our mental response. So both of those are kind of captured here in terms of uh, our emotional response and our mental response whether we murmur, grumble, dispute, or question. And the connection here is that we're pushing back on the previous verses, what's there. So God's will. It could be the environment, the conditions, the struggle, uh, our effort, or the testing that goes along with our spiritual growth and working out our salvation. 
It's God's ordained will that sometimes we sinfully reject. I can, um, I can be guilty of just a generally complaining attitude, uh, discontentment and impatience. But I go back to Paul as an example, remembering his authorship and considering at this time and considering his he's in prison, deserted, the shipwreck, the conflict he's facing. Yet in spite of that, he writes here, and it's written as a negative, in all things, don't grumble. But then, again, to, to look ahead in our book, he flips it on the positive in, verse, in chapter 4 where he talks about rejoice in the Lord always. So I ask why. Why aren't we supposed to grumble, complain, question? Well, he answers it for us, so we'll just keep reading here. That you may be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish. You could also maybe read in your version, above reproach. Blameless, innocent, Children of God without blemish and above reproach. I immediately thought of, and a few of you uh, um, this morning probably know where I'm reading because of our, our communication, but I've been, and it's probably a recency bias for me, quite honestly. But Job, my mind goes directly to Job when I hear the word blameless. Here's the description of that man, and it's the whole point of the book that it hinges on, but very early in just two chapters, he's already described this way verbatim three times. Job is blameless, he's upright, fears God, turned from evil. And God describes him as such three times. That is awesome. Blameless, upright, he fears God, he turns from evil. That is the tenor of his life. Not glorified, not sinless, But that can be a summation of somebody's life, somebody's Christian life. And I understand a little bit more now what that word innocent means. It's very helpful to note that what that mostly is referring to is you think of um, the production of wine or metallurgy and impurities or other things being introduced and mixed together. So when you hear innocent, it's the idea of being mixed with evil, with sin. You know, our culture today, we put a premium on personal happiness at all costs, ultimately just self-worship. I get sucked into it. But here Paul puts a premium on holy, and I'll call it anti-sin living with good works. And that equals a life that can be a pleasure to God. But we know the Christian life is uh, it's meant for trials so that they, sh- they shape us. Again, to use the word, sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. We have scriptures in mind and that, we, that we probably well know in James and 1 Peter. Now, I don't naturally like that idea that trials are inherent so that we'll be shaped. And as we saw in verse 12, In light of those things, we're supposed to give a sustained effort toward glorification. So if we 
juxtapose personal happiness and self-worship at all costs with what we have previously in chapter 2 with the kenosis. Christ's submissive will to the Father. Even his humble prayer in Gethsemane saying, not my will but yours. Not as I will, but as you will. Humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. Whoa! I mean, there's no, that's the ultimate extreme as opposed to self-worship and wanting happiness. So why do all things without grumbling, disputing? Well, the first summary is, is that we are presented as children of God and blameless. Jude, verse 24, this is the end, the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you as blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To him be glory forever. That's the summary. Don't, do, don't grumble, don't dispute, because we're supposed to be blameless. Secondly, we're supposed to reach others. And now we move a little bit farther ahead in our verse. We're supposed to be shining lights. We're supposed to be shining lights. Back to our verse 15. You might be blameless, might be innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of, and here it is, a crooked and twisted generation. It might say twisted or perverse generation. And we really don't need much by way of illustration here. We're in it. And I learned, ironically, that Moses actually uses this term crooked and twisted, crooked and perverse. He actually uses that term about Israel back in Deuteronomy. And think about that. It's an actual people group, nation, meant to be set aside, set apart, (laughs) But, of course, Paul uses that term here for the unsaved and the lost. The Apostle John might be saying the same way with the use of the world. When he says the world, he means the whole system of evil. The whole system of evil. Same idea. And the more that the world progresses into that evil, the more the Christian is to contrast. So, what about you? Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Do you act uh, entitled for your Christian walk to be without hardship, without trial, without resistance. I'm personally convicted of this. You know, why would anybody who's an unbeliever be attracted to a complaining Christian? <laughs> They're better off. How are we shining lights? How are you a shining light? Well, one, it's by contrast, it's by example. And, and second, and this is laid out for us as we continue reading in verse 15, it's holding forth, holding forward, offering the word of life, sharing truth about the gospel from the truth of the Bible to others. Again, practical. Paul's just step by step with the hands on but it's couched in some rich, rich truth and rich, rich doctrine. <clears throat> I 
if we continue in verse 16. Holding forward, that's the best way to think about it, offering forwards to somebody the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So here you have the Philippian pastor. You have the heart of Paul just coming through. If you remember earlier in verse 12, the charge was to own your sanctification in the current. And now he's saying, press on towards glorification, future, day of Christ. So he spurs these people on. He spurs them on and challenges them and tells them that he wants to rejoice in their faithfulness in the end. It's a motivator for him. Verse 17 Let me read 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Admittedly, for me, I... That one's tough for me to follow. I'm not familiar with the physical and sacrificial, uh, the actual physical rituals that occurred. So when I hear that, my first assumption was when he talks about being a drink offering that Paul's talking about, I'm going to eventually die. I'm probably going to be killed. I'm going to be martyred. Um, but the better representation, as I learned, is that it's actually more representing his current state, his life, not his death. Um, his suffering, his, his incarceration, at the time of this writing. And again, more specifically, it's his life, if you think about Romans 12, 1, uh, living sacrifice. But the direct example here is that his ministry, his ministry to the Philippians for their faith is what he's saying is a drink offering. So the picture is this. I'll be brief here, but it's very helpful. At least I should say it was helpful for me to understand more as I as I read on this. But you basically have a pagan understanding, a common understanding of how sacrifices were to occur. And you have two here illustrated. One is the main, I would say, offering that's placed or burnt on the altar. And then you have, you come in with a second, a drink offering. Could be wine, some would say honey even, or or water. And that goes on top. And then you have steam or a puff of smoke. And in a you know, metaf- the, the symbol, I should say, is that that then takes up the sacrifice that was placed on the altar to the nostrils and is a sweet smell to the deity being worshipped. And uh, that's the illustration here that's pretty embedded in that culture. Um, James Montgomery Boyce was so clear in helping me. What, he, what he's saying from this metaphor, what Paul is saying, and I'll quote him, is, I know that speaking to the Philippian church, I know that you're worried about me. I know you're worried about my death. But my life is not the most important thing as much as your faith. That is what is the valuable offering here. So in a way that he's holding up the faith and the great accomplishments of his converts as the main sacrifice to God. And he's just a part of that that helps facilitate it. Does that make sense? So beautiful language <clears throat> but the, there is a, an example for us there, and that's the example of Paul initially, because 
This really represents the type of humility that is exemplified in, in the servanthood of Jesus. Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying that the sacrifice of his converts is what's most important. And then again, ultimately exemplified in Jesus. If you could go back to verse 7 one last time in chapter 2. This is Christ emptying or making, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. So our example as we close out this section is Paul and his humility. And again, under all these conditions, he pens a book about joy and gladness. I've kind of paused throughout and asked us questions. I just want to kind of summarize this whole section in my own words if I could and consolidate it down as best I can. So here's my takeaway for us. I'll read it and then I'll I'll just close this in prayer and we'll be done. Here's my summary for us from verses 12 through 18. Your sanctification is from God, yet it requires you to fight against sin and strive for holiness. You are to do so out of reverence and love for God and by not grumbling, not disputing against his will for you, unsaved people can see you as different. You can shine as lights and then share the truth of the gospel. And all of this combined leads us to joy. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to look at this book. Thank you for Marshall, Zach, others that have um, just done due diligence and studying and and preparing. And may we just be a better church from this epistle. Thank you for, as we've seen, the example of Paul. But thank you most importantly, uh, the ultimate example in Christ and how, although we say it week in and week out, of course, how knowing Christ is, is what's going to impact our life. Thank you for salvation being of you. Thank you for sanctification being of you. May we not neglect our duty in response to you out of love. And Lord, it's so easy for me to pray, or I should say uh, speak about these dogmatic commands, yet it's quite different for me to live it out. And so I pray that we would hold ourselves Uh, accountable to do so, but we'd help each other to do it as well. Uh, Thank you for um, the, the hour to come. I just pray that you'd be exalted. You would be glorified in this church this morning. And thank you for your Bible. And it's, uh, it's in your son's name. I pray. Amen.